is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Angry parents and a possible hate crime at an elementary school in North Hollywood will go in depth. And lots of people in the area, uh, LA area, are house poor, and we'll explain what that means. Also, a big hearing today in Washington, D.C., focused on UFOs. But we start with Satakoy Elementary and its scheduled Pride Assembly, that's scheduled for this Friday. Renato Lira is director of the San Fernando Valley LGBTQ Center. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. It's really glad to be with you guys. My understanding of the issue is, which is that you've got a, a Pride uh, uh, scheduled day uh, for Pride on Friday at the school. There's a uh, an assembly reading scheduled of a book that has uh, a reference or references to same-sex couples. Some parents seem to be upset with that. And then you have the burning of a rainbow flag on school property. Is that it in a nutshell? Yes, it is. Um, they are celebrating um, Celebration Pride Month. It's really, uh, they're reading the book. It's nothing really bad, really, not really harm to the students. It's education. It is about Celebration Pride Month. It is what is about celebrating pride. He then also talked about two moms, two dads, you know, because there's a couple of parents who are LGBT. They have their kids in there. Sometimes the kids ask why you have two moms. So this will be a good opportunity to educate them and tell them what it's about LGBTQ. Now, some of the parents who are uh, opposed to uh, the Pride celebration and the reading of the book uh, are, are trying to point out that it, it's not about LGBTQ uh, it's not about pride per se. They claim that it's really about the kids are too young to be hearing any of this, to be shown any of this or taught any of this. Your response to that? Um, you know what? It's not. It's not that you're too too young for this. When is when are you ready to learn about this? When is it the time? Is that this is the time for that age people to know what is about LGBTQ? What is the education about that? So you're prepared for when you go to middle school, you go to high school, you already know what's going on. So, you know, they're saying that they're not against LGBTQ. They're not against about um, salary Pride Month. It is. You're against. If you're attacking the LGBT, you are. Because you're not there to support us. There's nothing harm to the kids. That's what I, I want to understand that. I don't understand what they're trying to say with that. Renato, are you surprised that this sort of reaction is taking place not in, as some people might suggest, you know, the South or, or, or Texas, but in North Hollywood. It is. You know, they, they're trying to do the same thing in California. Um, they think that they can do the same thing where Florida is going up there. This is not going to happen here in California. California is open. It is an uh, uh, open mind. And we're here to celebrate pride. It's not going to take us away. We're not going to follow the same protocols in Florida. That is not going to happen here. All right. Uh, Renato Lira is director of the San Fernando Valley LGBTQ Center. Uh, we did reach out to the L.A. school district for an interview. The district declined, but they did send a statement saying that the, the district is committed to creating a safe and inclusive learning environment that embraces the diversity of the communities we serve. It also goes on to say, quote, the L.A. school police department will be providing additional patrols around the campus. And we also reached out to the Satakoy Elementary parents for an interview on the show. 
but did not hear back. The, crew, the group, though, has denied any involvement in the burning of that LGBTQ plus flag on campus. Still ahead, UFOs are being discussed openly in a public hearing. We'll tell you what we have learned about these mysterious objects. Right now, though, a new analysis from product research company Chamber of Commerce finds more than one in four homeowners across the country, and nearly half right here in L.A., are considered to be house poor. Scott Ahrens is a realtor based in Southern California who has also worked on Wall Street. Scott, thanks for being with us. Thank you. So what exactly does it mean to be house poor? Well, in the um, the analysis that you're referencing, uh, the definition of house poor would be if 30 percent or more of your of a household's income goes toward housing costs. So with nearly half the people in L.A. considered house poor based on that criteria, uh, that's a huge problem, isn't it? And and more endemic of what's going on with housing in Southern California. True. Um, you know, the, the definition that that definition extends to the entire U.S. And um, and it's a little you know, the, the connotation is very negative. House poor. I'm not sure we could say these people are living in poverty. It's just feels like the upper end of the ceiling you know, or the range you'd want to be in. But the other thing to remember is that uh, Southern California is one of the nicest places to live in the U.S. People are very attracted to it and they pay a little more to live here. So um, on one level, it's it's, it's actually historically El- California and New York have always had the highest number of households that hit that that threshold. And I think it's because of the appeal of those areas. But there's certainly other factors going on as well and some stuff that relates to the current state of the market, which we could talk about. I I was going to say that that while New York and and California, Southern California anyway, and I guess the Bay Area, uh, have, you're quite right, always had this disproportionate amount of income spent on housing, uh, I guess the question is, is that becoming more problematic than it has been historically? And, And my other question is, does this have to do with people who are in their own homes, or is this also including people who are in rental units? Well, it definitely includes people who are rental in rental units, although the, the analysis that we're talking about was really focused on homeowners, but but for sure rental renters as well. And I would say that might even be more of a problem, um, in my opinion. Uh, but, you know, there's two components to this number. The first component is is income, and then that's divided by, or I'm sorry, would be the first component is the uh, housing expense, and the second component is your income, and you divide one from the other. So, in other words, if housing expenses rise, that makes the the number go up. But also, if your income declines, that also makes the number go up. And some of these stats we're looking at are from uh, right smack in the middle of the pandemic, where both things were occurring for people broadly. Um, housing costs were going up, but interest rates were declining. So net-net, monthly expenses might have been similar for people purchasing new homes. But income for many people, especially small business owners, were likely declining. And so that that is more of a temporary phenomenon that relates to factors other than housing. And, you know... Looking forward from here, I suppose it's a mixed outlook because there is a sense that we're already in a recession or entering one, and that's not great. 
But on the other hand, uh, things, you know, especially if that's the case, things probably only go up from here. So income should strengthen into next year. Um, and that might also help these but, percentages. But, but then you've got interest rates going up. So it's, it won't kind of be a push. Not really, because interest rates going up only affect the marginal new buyer, right? Like it doesn't, if you already own a home, you're going to, you're not affected by rising interest rates, only if you purchase a new home. So it's, it's a, it's a thin sliver of the market who's actually trading homes who would be affected. And that's actually um, an interesting, creating another interesting phenomenon in the market, which is very, very low inventory. People aren't selling their homes because they don't want to sell into this phenomenon where they trade their existing mortgage, which is probably um, refinanced or or new at a rate, you know, less than 4%. And they'd end up with a rate north of 6%, maybe 7%. And so that's caused, caused a bit of a freeze up in the market. I don't want to exclude any segment of our audience. So my question is, other than perhaps the Kardashians, who would be house rich? <laughs> well, uh, it, I mean, technically, and by by the terms of like, it, by this definition, it would be anybody whose uh, uh, housing costs as a percentage of their overall income is less than 30%. So, you know, in uh, between 2015 and 2019, uh, there were, uh, you know, the vast majority were beneath that 29, 26 to 29%. So, by that, I mean, there's strong terms, poor, rich. I think it's just more a guideline for where it's comfortable to be. It might almost be like housing cost uncomfortable versus housing cost comfortable. That there might be go. a better way to yeah. put it. I'm uncomfortable paying anything, but what are you going to do? Well, there you go. Me uh, too. <laughs> Scott Aaron's a realtor based in Southern California, also worked on Wall Street. And a little bit later in the show, we will look into the public hearing today about UFOs and whether we are learning about what they are and where they're from. I personally have always thought they're from Poughkeepsie. I can't tell you why. <laughs> it's just a feeling. I got, you've been contacted telepathically, and that's what they're telling you. Uh, right now, though, Russia has drastically increased its missile attacks on Kiev in the past couple of weeks. Uh, this has understandably made a lot of people in Ukraine's capital worried. Back with us is Kirill, who lives in Kiev. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Hey, guys. Nice to hear you. So uh, how on edge are people around you now with the, this increase in missile attacks? Well, uh, yeah, the problem is the people kind of not sleeping very well because the all these uh, attacks, they happen in, in the night, like in the late night, 2 a.m. maybe, kind of like this. And this is not only missile attacks. Also, a drone attacks and explosions uh, are really loud. I was going to say, how close to where you are have any of these missiles or drones attacked? Well, I'm usually going to the metro and uh, hide there because uh, you're actually not allowed to shoot something that's uh, some explosions because, yeah, uh, that's punishable. And, yeah, it's not really safe. So this is the best way to go to the metro or another shelter. 
How much concern is there uh, with the fact that there were some alleged drone attacks in Moscow that Moscow says was carried out by Ukraine, even though they didn't do a lot of damage? But it does apparently have a lot of people in Moscow a little bit on edge. Uh, Are you concerned that you're going to see more retaliation and more missiles because of that? Well, uh, I don't really care about Moscow and the the attack of the drones because, well, um, if uh, I don't know who did this because this is not uh, Ukraine doesn't officially declare that it was our attack, so it it can be someone in the in the Russia, uh, but Russia is uh, attacking uh, us like without drone attacks on the Kremlin or uh, on the Moscow, so they they don't care. They will attack, and uh, this is great. It is not great at all, but. The good thing is we had the Western uh, air defense right now, so Patriots, and they work really, really well. Karel, you know, we've been uh, talking on and off for about, I guess, 15 months, uh, maybe a little less. And uh, I know when we first started talking to you, uh, at least in Kiev, which had been pretty much left uh, unscathed, at least in the earlier days, Life was going on pretty much as normal. Uh, you are now talking about people having lack of sleep, that sort of thing. How different is life in Kiev now than it was, say, a year ago? Well, yeah, life is kind of back to normal. So everything is working. Businesses, businesses are opened. So uh, this is just the usual life, uh, but with... Uh, Curfew and uh, with uh, this attack. So, but life goes on. So, yeah, people even even do during to the war and do the war. Uh, people compete. Uh, people working. People going out. So, yeah, it's not like a year ago. Definitely, like a year ago, exactly. Life may be starting to come back in here. Uh, but it was not really like right now. All right, uh, Kirill, uh, in Kiev, Ukraine, right now, as the city is suffering some uh, ramped-up missile attacks from Russia. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Now, some scientists and other experts got together today in Washington, D.C. for a public hearing by NASA on the study of UFOs. This is like NASA, NASA. NASA. Right. The, the NASA. The NASA. Yeah. A final report is set to come out later this summer, but what did we learn, if anything, today? Nick Pope is a consultant and investigative journalist and formerly ran the British government's UFO project in the 1990s at the Ministry of Defense. Nick, thanks for coming back with us. Thank you. So what did we learn? Anything? Yes, I think so. I I know it's a little bit of a cliche, but I'll start off really by saying the extraordinary thing about this meeting was that they had it at all, because I'm sure we all remember it wasn't that long ago when if you'd asked NASA about UFOs, they said, look, we're, we're a serious scientific agency. We don't do that sort of thing. And now here we are. So so that is great news. And, and there was real enthusiasm, I think, at the meeting from all these different scientists to try and get to the bottom of the mystery. And isn't part of it also to kind of demystify it a bit so that people who do see things in the sky 
not knowing what they are, not assuming, oh, my gosh, it's aliens from Pluto. Uh, it's actually some kind of aircraft or some kind of craft. And it it should be studied if we don't know where it's from, because it might be some other nation testing some advanced technology that we don't know about. Exactly. And science often advances by looking at the anomalies, by looking at the things that don't seem to fit our standard model of the world. And then scientists ask questions, they make hypotheses, and then they test those hypotheses through through experimentation. So there was a lot of talk today, as you'd expect, about the importance of data and, and the importance of adhering to the scientific method. And, and that's all well and good. But there was some pretty interesting far out speculation as well. Uh, one one of the panelists said, hey, if, if we are being visited, maybe there are probes in our solar system and we're not currently geared up to look for that. Maybe we should. You know, uh, you mentioned quite correctly that up until now, really, uh, something like NASA would never be caught dead doing a public hearing on UFOs because they would think it would be unseemly and beneath them. But I am curious because we mentioned at the top that you did uh, for a period of time right in in the UK run your government's uh, at the time UFO project at the Ministry of Defense. Did they take it seriously? Yes, we did. We we regarded it as a defense and national security issue. And that was one of the interesting things about today's hearing, because NASA are not leading on this, but NASA are supplying scientific expertise to help the Department of Defense. It's the Pentagon's Arrow Office, All Domain Anomaly Resolution, that has the U.S. government lead for this. And so there's an interesting little bit of, uh, you know, do we treat this as a science problem or do we treat it as a defense, national security and air safety problem? The answer is actually all of the above. And we got into a little bit of that at the Ministry of Defense back when I was doing this. Now, how much uh, among the scientists and the experts uh, credence is given to the idea of like, yes, it, it might be technology, uh, might be a defense problem, might be an air safety problem. But but obviously there are some who are going to say it's aliens. Uh, aliens are coming down to visit us. Uh, how much credence is given to those scientists who want to look into that aspect of it? Well, there are certainly some astrobiologists on the panel, and I think a lot of the panelists are believers in the existence of alien life, but they went to great pains, understandably, today to say, look, we may believe in extraterrestrial life, but we have not yet seen definitive proof uh, that that any of the UAP data so far constitutes that. Having said that, they haven't really started looking and refining the data. So there's a lot of work to do. And I think we'll know a little bit more about uh, what they're going to recommend um, later this summer when their, their recommendations are published. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I ever asked you this question, but have you reached a conclusion in your own mind since you've been dealing with this for a good number of years and what you think? Well, I think the the UFO data, I don't think there's a single neat answer to it. There are lots of different things going on, most conventional, others I don't know. Life out there, if you ask me that, absolutely. Life visiting us down here, like the NASA people. My view is we haven't seen a smoking gun yet, but we haven't really been looking properly. And that was what today's meeting was all about. Here's the million-dollar conspiracy theory question. If NASA or governments had proof that it it is aliens would they tell us 
NASA would, and they said as much today, and said that they might get some flack for it. Uh, other parts of the government, if they're the ones that find it first, um, some of the, the, the classified um, material and studies, I'm not so sure they would. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, that is Nick Pope, a consultant and investigative journalist, formerly ran the British government's UFO project in the 90s at the Ministry of Defense. Of course, here in California, uh, we're concerned with what kind of fuel the uh, aliens might be using. Yes. Is it are they EV environmental? Or are they doing yeah. fossil fuels? What are they doing? You know, you know what, what I don't think has been tried, Rob? Maybe maybe we can do it on the show. You know, if we set up an 800 number mm -hmm. and if there's an alien out there, if they call it. Maybe right. maybe that would work. They could tweet at us, too. They could tweet us, yes. too. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's try that. All right. Well, you know, movie theaters, studios, they are hoping for a hot summer at the box office, and they mean like in terms of money, with some big films coming out, like the new Indiana Jones and Mission Impossible movies. So theaters are upgrading, try to get more people back in the seats. They're installing things like reclining lounge chairs, and offering some fancier food. Andy Draper is co-host of the podcast Off Script Film Review. He's also with Southern Methodist University School of the Arts. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So if they install things like reclining comfy chairs and uh, fancy food, how, uh, how will that, how many more people do you think that'll attract back into the theaters that aren't going now? Um, it's hard hard to say. It definitely makes the experience uh, a lot better. I know I like a nice warm seat. Um, that that most of them are, are these big, comfy kind of recliners now. Back from you know back in the day, they had much like very tight wooden seats, things like that. So it's a much better experience. But it's hard to say exactly how much that's bringing in more people. And doesn't it though actually annoy some people because? I don't know about you, but I don't mind necessarily sitting next to somebody eating popcorn. I do mind uh, sitting next to somebody who's having a seven-course dinner. Right. Well, luckily, only places like Alamo Drafthouse really do kind of the larger meals, and their menu has gotten a lot smaller uh, since the, the pandemic. And they do a really good job of they come and get your order at the very beginning of the before the film even starts they get your your payment method and then they really only come in and uh give you your stuff like once or twice throughout the film so it's not too uh dis disruptive well i know the improvements to movie theaters for a while was uh tech technological uh they had better projection systems you know they went digital uh the sound systems of course get louder and louder but uh, more immersive as you go along uh has that aspect of it kind of slowed down and so that's why theaters are focusing on on creature comforts uh there's still a lot of advances being made in that area you have the uh what they call 4dx where where you have um seats that will like tilt and shake and and rumble and kind of give you that uh, almost like Disney ride experience. Uh, and you have IMAX screens, you have XD screens, you have the uh, kind of this new kind of 360 degree screen as well. So they're still making advances there, but uh, exhibitors are trying to just entice audiences in kind of all areas of the theater. No, our seats here rumble too, but it has nothing to do with IMAX. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> it's an earthquake somewhere. Yeah, right. Uh, but, you know, uh, back in the uh, late 50s, early 60s, when the movie industry thought that television was going to be their their demise, they started doing more than just you know, food and, and better 
seats. They were giving out things because I remember my mother used to get you know, dishes and and things that were useful around the house. Do they need to do something more than just better seats and and maybe you know better food? Do they need to start giving things away? You know, like, I don't know, like a like a car or something like that. I mean, gimmicks like that can kind of be be effective, but. At the end of the day, it's really about the films that the studios are giving to to the theaters. Uh, that's why people come out. They want to see these big pictures like last year's Top Gun Maverick, Avatar, or Indiana Jones this year. And like you said, Mission Impossible. It's really the films that get people to the theaters, no matter how many luxuries and gimmicks you add. And speaking of films, you know, this could be an issue uh, a little bit down the road. Uh, naturally, movies coming up, they're already in the can. They're doing post-production. The stuff's already been filmed. They were certainly already written. But with this writer's strike and what could soon turn into an actor and director strike, uh, are we going to run into these really advanced movie theaters, but there's nothing to show? That could definitely be be a possibility. Probably not right now, but it has a big domino effect. So maybe in six, nine months, maybe a year from now is when theaters might just not really have much to show. Uh, by contrast, the streamers usually uh, create their shows and movies way in advance. So they have a little bit more of a stockpile and will have a little bit more runway um, as the strike goes on. Do you think, though, that movie theaters, movie, uh, movie companies even, have to radically rethink their 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 purpose, uh, their existence, uh, because all these other stopgap measures, they perhaps increase audiences here and there, but the general decline is still, it seems inevitable. Uh, theaters are definitely in a tough moment right now, especially with streaming. Uh, but stri- they were saying that streaming was going to be the death now a year or two ago, and it hasn't quite come to happen. Um, it turns out streaming is incredibly expensive and hard to make profitable, so there's not as much content uh, that the streamers are investing in, and they can't actually make as much money, the studios, without the theaters. Uh, so they they kind of need each other. It's very symbiotic. How much longer do you think it'll be before uh, some theater owner gets the idea to do VR headsets? And then, uh, and how much longer after that will it take for the customer to say, well, I can do this at home? Well, we're kind of already there. Uh, VR is uh, pretty prevalent um, as far as access to it. If people really want to invest in that, Apple is supposed to make a big announcement next week about some sort of VR technology. Uh, it's something, but it's it's really in its infancy, and it's expensive, and you know you got to think of the logistics of if you have a theater full of VR sets, uh, how do you clean them and sanitize them, and what happens when they break, and it it might be just a lot more trouble than, than it's worth in the end. All right, there you go. Thank you so much, Andy Draper, co-host of the podcast Off Script Film Review, also with Southern Methodist University School of the Arts. That's what we need here, though. We need lounge chairs. Right. And yes. better food. Because the chair I have over here, I think you've seen it happen to me several times, Charles. I'll be doing my business, right, and then all of a sudden I start sinking. And sometimes, <laughs> suddenly, and it's not comfortable, but it's because of this chair. And this is the chair I like. And I thought you were just losing stature. That, is, yes, very true. Thank you, Charles, for bringing that to my awareness again. Uh, that's it for KNX In-Depth. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.